This is RDQI. Dave, we we ended last episode wondering what value is. So it caused me to do a little reading and kind of poking around the internet and seeing what other people might be saying. And I stumbled upon this interesting instance in history in our country, in 2011 at least, where across the nation, Thai liquid detergent was being stolen at criminal, like almost organized crime rates of theft. And looking into it, the reason was stealing Tide was A, would be considered a misdemeanor shoplifting charge if you were caught instead of a felony charge if you stole cash from a register. So even though you might be able to get the same value out of the theft, your risk was lower. And because Tide is ubiquitously used in our world, it was easy to fence, that is, sell illegally so that it could be sold legally. Does that make Tide liquid detergent a currency? I I love stories like that. (laughs) So over the past week, I have been diving down the rabbit hole trying to understand what currency is, which is a little bit scary to think about because, I mean, I'm a I've been professionally involved in accounting and finance for the majority of my professional career. And the fact that I don't think I could have given you a good definition of what currency is a week ago is is pretty scary, you know, but <laughs> I <laughs> the way the industry works is you come in day 1 and the what money is or what currency is 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 an assumption. Okay, of course we know what it is. Now, what are we going to do with it? But the inherent concept of what currency is it's a black box. It's it's enshrouded in so much mystery. And, you know, I don't really think I am all that much smarter for having spent a week trying to study this. I, you know, I think I know even less now. <laughs> but let me take a stab at it, right? So if we can consider tied a currency in this case, I think we have to kind of understand what currency is. So... At the very fundamental level, currency is a medium to facilitate trade. So economists will call it a medium of exchange. And that's a you know very fancy term, but it's describing a pretty simple thing, right? You know, in the beer episode, we talked about division of labor <clears throat> in, in terms of how civilizations came about. And 
you know, at some point we decided to settle the civilizations and we said, look, it makes a lot more sense for us to segment labor. So I'm going to do this one thing and I'm going to do it really well. Someone else is going to do something else. And then we're going to trade. Um, now, if you're living in a small society, you can actually trade. I can give you a loaf of bread for a jug of beer. Um, but you can see how you know, even increasing that the the number in the society by a small amount, it becomes very difficult to actually facilitate that kind of trade, right? Especially if you're producing like a bigger asset. Like obviously, you know, nobody in the ancient world is producing cars, but think about if you're if you're making cars. Well, you can't, you know, you need bread and beer, but you can't sell one car for 50,000 loaves of bread. You want to sell <laughs> like one fiftieth of that car for a couple loaves of bread. But how do you subdivide an asset? So that's what a medium of exchange is. It's this third party, third class, other good or service that denominates or keeps the score of the relative value of the things that you're trading. Right. Okay. So you sell this car and it's worth 50000 of uh, whatever that medium of exchange is. And now you can subdivide the value and you can buy bread, you can buy... And, and you know, it... it this is, you know, we're going to have a lot of these uh, stuttering moments here because I'm telling you, this stuff is so unbelievably complicated. I mean, okay, but what <laughs> you're saying, it's it's pretty simple on the face of it. If Okay, so I'm a baker, let's say. I can make bread every day as long as I have a steady supply of flour, right? But mm -hmm. the people supplying me with flour, they only have one harvest a year, Right. So even though I can yep. make bread the year round from that flour ostensibly, as long as I can keep it, you know, usable, the farmer doesn't have that benefit. So how would that exchange work? You know, I'm going to take all of your flour on the promise that I will then give, turn it into bread and give it to you for the rest of the year. And that makes sense in a small mm -hmm. agrarian society. But then to your point, we're not there anymore. We're in a post-industrialized society. We make cars. So how would the farmer in this case, if we were just trading, how would the farmer buy a car? The only way would be if there was a third thing in this equation that everyone agrees on has a value, that we all share that value. Therefore, we can use it as a medium of exchange, exactly like you're saying. That makes sense. I think yep. it's pretty elementary. I think how we get to what our currency is now is kind of crazy. Well, that's why that's why it's wild, right? I mean, if you think about it now, you know the the medium of exchange so quickly moves from like, okay, yeah, that's pretty easy to see that we're all going to place our trust in this in this third thing. But I mean, money is like a a thing unto itself nowadays. You know, you don't really connect money with like exchanging goods and services. I mean, I guess you do because you go to a grocery store, you want something, you 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 know pay money to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but money has taken on a life of its own because when you expand a currency to a much, much broader society, it now tends to operate within this own, with it, with like its own set of laws. Um, and, that really causes the the confusion because I think up to this point you're like Dave, why is this so difficult to understand? Like it seems pretty simple to me. Sure. Um, but now let's talk about where it gets sort of complicated. Yeah. So, what makes a currency? <clears throat> so there's three 
essential elements that you need for a currency to exist. There's durability, right? It has to be like a tangible thing. Right. So a loaf of bread wouldn't work because eventually it will mold, it will rot, it will decay. Gotcha. Right. Yep. So the second point is agility, right? It has to be able to uh, be somewhat mobile and exchangeable. So you can't be trading giant Stonehenge boulders because you can't move them around. Sure. Or like Um, our original example, if a loaf of bread is something you can exchange, but what if you want to buy a car and you need to move 50,000 loaves of bread? That's a, that's a challenge all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then the third, which is, uh, I, it's, it's really the most, um, um, the least intuitive, I think, but the most important, and that's scarcity. So some of the earliest currencies were uh, things like shells. Um, and the problem with shells is it's like a product that occurs in nature, and it's not terribly scarce. So. Sure. Mm-hmm. When you have, let's say, you know, think about the money. Let's so let's define this concept of money supply, right? Mm-hmm. Money supply is the total amount of however you denominate the currency. So let's call it shells, the total amount of shells available for exchange. Your share of the total amount in the money supply is what determines the value of the currency that you have. And just an aside, now you can start to see how currency is taking on a life of its own. Right, right. Because because of its very existence, it exists in a different way. Right. Yeah, because your example of shells, like clamshells were used ostensibly by Indian tribe or Native American tribes in the Northeast. It was a monetary exchange were clamshells. That's where we, you know, get the phrase, made some clams today. Yep. So there is scarcity there because nature makes it. Humans can't make clamshells, at least not very well, so counterfeits would be easy to see. And if you're not an industrialized society, clamshells can be pretty hard to actually um, find and bring into the money supply. So there's an element of scarcity there. But it only works as yes, long as which the is, technology isn't available to easily bring in a ton of clamshells. Right. Right. There wasn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't perfect scarcity, um, but, I mean, there's, as, as we'll see... Scarcity is is one of the biggest problems that faces money. Um, But you still had the ability to either break shells, which would limit the supply, or find new shells, which, you know, would would increase the money supply. And you could see different currencies emerging throughout history. And I want to dive into the history too much, but I think it's important to touch on gold. Mm -hmm. Right? Because... For most of history, humanity sort of settled on gold as the fundamental backing for any currency. Yeah, it seems like every civilization was agreeing that gold is valuable. No matter where you are, China to Egypt to Mesoamerica, gold is valuable. Yep. And and that has to do... So the durability, obviously, gold is uh, it, you know metal. You can't really destroy it. The agility is... It's, you know, it's not... Uh, it's no Stonehenge brick, Um you know, a little bit difficult to, to carry around like a little more so than paper money, um, but relatively agile. And then scarcity, right? Um, gold, you, you know, you had to mine it from the earth. It was very, it was relatively rare, difficult to find. So it was difficult to increase the money supply. Mm-hmm. Um, but not impossible, right? It, you know, you, you 
everybody's heard of different gold rushes throughout um, throughout history. Those gold rushes were, hey, it, like something that we can be, use as currency and increase the money supply that nobody's had yet. Now, when you add to the money supply, everybody's relative share goes down. But if you're the person to discover all the new money, you can see how, you know, very quickly like, oh, hey, I'm rich for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Mm -hmm. Until inflation sets in. And, you know, as an aside, that's sort of what happened in the, um, you know, the French Revolution. The aristocrats ran out of money. They just printed a bunch more. They basically increased the money supply and they were filthy rich for a little bit. Yep. Until that that influx in the money supply kind of made its way felt throughout the economy. And then you have rampant inflation because now everybody's share of the money supply is worth substantially less. And that is, you know, what causes all these, these chaotic things. It's, you know, it's so tempting because I I've had this conversation with like smart finance people before, you know, what would you do if you all of a sudden, like, why don't you just print a bunch of money? Why, you know, what's the downstream effect of that? You don't really think about the downstream impact. You just think, hey, I didn't have a million dollars. Now I do. Mm-hmm. Yep. I can spend all this, you know, but like you don't realize that, well, okay, but every the price of everything else is going to go up relative to that million and it's not really going to be worth as much. Yeah, you'll end up with a Weimar Republic situation, which if you're not in the know, that's the government that was formed in Germany between World War One and the Nazis arriving. And they printed so much money that it was actually more efficient as fuel to burn the paper than to actually try and buy fuel for it. So you can, it's easy to hyperinflate and then yeah, you're SOL basically. There's just nothing you can do. And, and this like that concept to me is hilarious because it, it really goes to show you how little we understand how money works and how easily we forget how money works because there are so many instances of hyperinflation throughout history, throughout even modern history. Right. You know, like, guys, did we not learn about this last year in Argentina? <laughs> Why are we doing it again in Mozambique? And, you know, you know it's, 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 man, it's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. And there's other mitigating factors. It's not just idiots like pumping money into the system, but right. it at a fundamental level, that's, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. And there's too much, I mean, the Federal Reserve also has a, they try to control inflation. And actually, there's some measure of economic thinking that a small percentage of inflation is actually very good for the economy, which we're not going to get into that because that's central banking and we're not ready to talk about that. Let me really quick touch on it because I don't want to just leave something like central banking there and then ignore it. So sure. in our so far, just to to keep us on track here. Sorry, Dave. What is currency? I think we've got it. You know, what makes a currency a currency? Like what makes it valuable? I think we've got that. Mm-hmm. How does a currency maintain its value? And that's where central banking comes in. Because the the you know, the thing that we always forget, the counterintuitive piece that makes currency valuable, that scarcity element is where we get into so much trouble. Sure. Because now we have what's what's called a fiat currency. Again, fancy word for um, currency that is not really backed by anything. It's not backed by gold. It's backed by the trust in a government to control the scarcity of that currency. Exactly. Or the integrity, I guess, would be a better word. Right. So what a central bank does is it controls how big the money supply is. That's all they do. Literally all they do. 
Right. Right, which is an important faction because, I mean, if every state in the United States could print money, that would be chaos. Now, if you have, and especially the way the dollar has kind of become the global currency in a lot of ways, which, again, we shouldn't get into that because that's pretty complicated, too. Um, So it's important that there's only one entity printing U.S. dollars to maintain that scarcity. And there are a lot of people who think that the central bank shouldn't exist because, you know, when you when you add money into a system, there are reasons to do it, right? I mean, we just added one trillion into the into the U.S. dollar system mm-hmm. because of COVID, as you know, COVID bailout. Yep. We added, I forget the number, but several billion in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Yep. Um. When you do that, you you do it to stave off short-term financial collapse. Um, but there are people out there, you know, going back to our free market, invisible hand concept from last episode. Mm-hmm. There are people out there that say, no, it will correct itself. It might be painful, but it will correct itself because when you add money into the money supply, all of a sudden everybody's relative share of the currency goes down and thus you have inflation and you can get into a ton of trouble. And when we announced the, you know, the $1 trillion addition, that was a big fear. Um, you know, and, and frankly, the reason why we haven't seen it yet is because we're still seeing a fairly low demand. And at the same time, I mean, everybody has a, a you know, has this like your relative share didn't change, right? Because everybody got mostly the same amount. Sure. So your denominator gets bigger, but your numerator also gets bigger too. So really, if you think about it, your your COVID-19 stimulus check didn't increase the value of your money at all. I mean, in the short term, it did because inflation is going to lag behind. Sure. Um, because it takes a while for the system to realize that more money has been pumped in. Um, but really, if you think about it, it, you didn't get any more money. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, to your point in the short term, it was a lot easier to pay rent that month because exactly. your rental agreement yep. hasn't changed reflecting the inflation that is probably to some degree going to happen, which makes total sense. I mean, we expect COVID-19 to disappear eventually. So, or not disappear, we'll have a better handle on it and the economy can return to some level of robustness. So yeah, short stop gap makes some sense, but it's also confusing. It's confusing that, you know, that our government could just be like, yeah, sure. We'll just print some more money. And have that be acceptable. Yeah. You know, as I was, I was, when I was, uh, looking into this actually late last night, um, I had one of these moments where, and, and economic theory can do this to you. You know, it's, it's easy to see how you can really dive into like the world of economics and then come out of it and think like, yes, free market capitalism is the only way mm-hmm. because that's what all the math tells you. But again, going back to our concept of last time, you know, did beer create civilization? Like, no, 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 no. There's a lot more going on. There's a lot more that we don't understand that's that's leading, you know, these and, and talking it through with you. Like, oh, yeah, you know what? We don't necessarily want to increase the money supply, but the alternative is we do nothing and we see an economic collapse in the short term rather than a much easier to deal with inflationary period in the long term. Yeah. That trade-off seems like a pretty easy choice. Yeah. 
I mean, I think 99 out of 100 people would vote yes on that if it were if it were a referendum. Obviously, there's going to be some holdouts, some idealists, and that's good. We need those people to push back on ideas. But I think the overwhelming majority of people are on board with this plan be- mm-hmm. because it makes our life easier. And I wonder if, there, if there's a historical example of where something like this was going to happen and we did nothing. I don't know. Well, I think, I mean, one of the aspects of the history of currency that I found was interesting, which was... Um, Let me see if I can briefly summarize this. So the European powers in the 16 to 1700s into the 1800s as well, they had a lot of uh, colonization across the globe. And kind of the business model was England's not going to trade gold with France because England needs to maintain its gold reserves, right? Because if it loses its gold reserves in trade to France, it has a trade deficit, let's say. That puts England in a very poor position monetarily because they're relying on a gold standard currency. You actually need the gold to back it up, right? So the process was, okay, let's extract wealth from our colony and ship all that wealth back to uh, Great Britain in this case. And usually from the colonies, that was things like cotton, things like timber. Um, And it was important that the raw materials were sent from the colonies to Great Britain and then were refined there into final products that those products could then be sold somewhere else or just inside of the state. That way is this concept is called mercantilism. That way Great Britain maintains its sovereignty through its control of money, which makes total sense if you're using a gold standard. It makes it makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously the colonies got a little upset about this extraction of wealth and the lack of representation and we know how that ended. And <laughs> And so, you know, so the world changes. And then we got to the point where post-World War One, and then even more so post-World War II, a lot of the gold from the world was in the United States. Because all these actors, I mean, all the countries that fought these wars had to pay these debts somehow. And the United States, for the most part, in World War I was neutral. And before World mm-hmm. War II was financing Great Britain, was financing Russia to an extent. So we were accruing a lot of gold wealth. Well, that kind of shook the balance of things. And it became the future of a global economic world depended on thinking about currency in a different way. And I can understand why there's a lot of people who have misgivings about this, who have, have conspiracy theories attached to this. It makes total sense to me. If you, look at, if you look at just a certain set of facts, you can extract anything you want out of it. I totally get it. It's this weird point where currency is actually kind of on the forefront because really what's fascinating is the concept of cryptocurrency. And if that's going to be, I should say not if, but when is that going to be the dominant form of currency in the world? Yeah. So I, I have been really struggling with finding a conclusion in all of this. I mean, you touched on, um, you know, the fact that we, somehow the U.S. ended up with all of the gold between the periods of World War One and World War Two. The mechanism with which we did that is the U.S. essentially, oh God, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to get the, the directional signs correct, but they either devalued their, their um, index to gold, which don't even ask me to explain what that really means, but <laughs> they basically like lowered the price for gold and then it, it caused all these investors to exchange gold for US dollars. And the history of the, the various like um, changes, developments 
innovations in the finance world all kind of follow that same pattern. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am more knowledgeable about economics and finance than most people. And I'm reading this stuff nine times over. And like, I don't, why this makes no sense to me. I don't (laughs) even understand the mechanism, let alone why anybody would do this. Right. Um, the conclusion that I'm drawing is so much of the development of the financial world has come from people who saw a semantical loophole in the game that they could exploit to gain a quick buck. Mm -hmm. And because in somehow that little loophole became the way things were done. Um, you know, everything from like the development of the bond and the bond market to finance wars, Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, the, derivative instruments and and hedging instruments of like the modern financial world that you know helped to cause the 2007 2008 collapse there's so much ability to exploit currency through its complexity and 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 it's so dangerous because like we you know our our thesis this entire series so far has been for as much as we think we know, we really don't know anything. And that's my conclusion <laughs> after spending the last couple of weeks. To, I, I know less about it now than I did when I started. <laughs> well, I think you're getting back to the core idea of currency, though, which is it only exists because we all agree it exists. Even gold. We only agree gold is valuable because for some reason we think it is valuable. I mean, there's reasons for it. It's not like totally out of thin air. There's a reason disparate civilizations that had no contact with each other all valued gold. But again, all those civilizations made a conscious choice saying that, oh yeah, this precious metal, it's not just metal, it's a precious metal, it has value. And therefore we will use it as a modicum or a medium of exchange. So if... if Yeah, if but currency still has problems like... Well, when when the Spanish went to uh, the New World, they all of a sudden found a ton of gold, increased the money supply, and it led to horrible problems. You know, we said, "Oh, we're not going to move gold around, so we're going to actually issue paper that's going to be backed by gold." And then it, it's, it, you know, again, it's it, even though you have something that seems relatively stable, there's still so much room for people to go in and screw with it. Which, when you mentioned crypto, you know, in my notes I have crypto might be the solve to this problem Uh, because I (laughs) keep going. Well, yeah, you're going to find people who are going to argue violently about either side of this, right? Sure. Um, but what, what is unique about crypto is, and cryptocurrencies is, um, you know, Bitcoin is the, is the, like the primary cryptocurrency. Um, it's basically, uh, it's trying to put it in a quick sound bite. Um, it's a, it's a pure digital currency, but it is, you know, has very, very, um, sophisticated what's called cryptology. So it is, it's locked. It's like you have a finite amount of it. You can't produce more. You can't produce less. So that controls the scarcity. Well, because of yeah. the nature of it and what we call the the blockchain, which is basically um, basically this impenetrable historical ledger. So whenever anything is done within the realm of Bitcoin, it is recorded and it's recorded and shared between all of the different computers that are running Bitcoin and blockchain. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, you can't like do something and then smash your computer. It doesn't matter. It's on a, a million other computers. Like you cannot ever get rid of the history, the, the record of, of transactions. Record so of transactions. Correct. I think you can. I think it is possible to, if you own cryptocurrency, to put it in a digital wallet that might exist on a USB. And then if that USB is lost, I think you've lost that crypto. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Um, but you can't add to it. Right. Right. Because the way that at least Bitcoin, it's mined in a algorithmic sense where computers run. And basically, I, don't ask me to explain this because I'm not a computer scientist, but there's a process <laughs> where you can discover new Bitcoin. But the more that are discovered, the more difficult on an exponential factor is it to find more. So there is scarcity built into the system that way. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not a computer scientist either, and I'm still a little bit nervous about the security. But, you know, whenever I'm... The the research that I've done and, and reading and listening to computer scientists who are very heavily involved in this, the security seems to be pretty much iron ironclad. Like... I thought so this too, but be messed with. I thought so too until North Korea stole two hundred and fifty million dollars worth of crypto. Well, I mean, if you put something in a digital wallet on a USB, then it's a physical asset, and you can still steal it. Oh, I meant like like hacking wise. Oh, yeah. I don't. I maybe. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I like the security element. I'm still scared about. To be clear, two hundred and fifty million dollars worth of something in the world scale of the money supply is like sneezing it's nothing but it's not totally immune from those factors is what i'm saying yeah no no no. i makes sense i mean that's my my biggest worry too i'm like i don't i don't know but i think one of the (laughs) coolest aspects of it or maybe coolest might not be the best way interesting is the component of bitcoin and you know facebook's libra that project they're trying to release is that it's independent of government you don't need a central bank to regulate this. You don't even need the United yep. States to back it. So I think that's where it kind of becomes very fascinating is if mm-hmm. we adopted cryptocurrency as the way to exchange wealth um, or ex- at least exchange currency, all of a sudden governments are going to have a very different tack on how they can con- control the economy or at least influence it. Yeah, but... You know the the people who are pushing Bitcoin as the as the you know the global currency, they're looking at how governments are managing currencies, and I mean there are <sighs> currencies are mismanaged every day. Um, you know, just look at look at how many currencies have gone defunct. Uh, the Mozambique, uh, I can't remember the name of the it might have just been dollar. Um, but I actually have a friend who has a, a $50 billion Mozambican note. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. There's one of the last, you know, cause they're just hyperinflation. And he said, you know, 50 billion could buy you like half a Coke and people would, you know, walk around with bags of money, um, mm-hmm. briefcases of money to buy groceries. I mean, the best case example of the fact that currencies are managed poorly to some degree is the fact that there's a whole index of people who make a living just exchanging currencies, playing the the global markets currencies against each other. The fact that you can make a living doing that, I think indicates that currency is highly volatile and it's not managed very well. Cause again, we probably don't really understand it that well. I, I, I will admit, uh, 
live that I have no idea what drives up and down, uh, what what drives currency values up and down on the exchange. No idea. Right. I've I've really tried to understand it, and I don't. Just flat, I don't. But apparently, there's some people who have a pretty good, at least they feel comfortable gambling on that, because they do. You know. So I, I, well, but I, I don't think they fundamentally understand why. I mean, you can look at, you know, if you look at how currencies interact relative to each other and, and various things that are happening in the world, you can get pretty good at saying, oh, it rained on Tuesday. Well, that means this is going to happen. Doesn't mean you understand really the mechanism behind that. Sure. And unfortunately, that is more how trading is done, not just in the exchange, the currency markets, but in the, you know, stock markets and bond markets as well. Like most of these trades are done off algorithms that are just looking at, you know, they're looking at like different factors in the environment that historically have caused X to do Y. Right. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean you understand why these things, the values are fluctuating. You're just looking at patterns, this pattern recognition. And I think it's important to note that this is common throughout humanity and a lot of other fields. My favorite analogy is Tylenol or the drug itself is called acetaminophen. The mechanism of action, which is what the, how the drug does what it does in your body, of Tylenol is not understood. No one can tell us why Tylenol does what it does. We know that it does what <laughs> it does. We know it can reduce inflammation and fight fevers and, you know, um, subdue your headache. But that's kind of it. That's crazy. And it's not like people are going to stop taking Tylenol now because they know that. <laughs> right. Yeah, it still cures my headache, so I'm going to keep taking it. Right. And since there's been so, it's a relatively low adverse rate, you know, at first the affected rate, it's a risk people are willing to take. So, I mean, and kind of getting back to the original question, if we don't understand currency, but we use it every day, all the time, we exchange it for our hours of our life through work, how is it valuable to us? Yeah, I guess because because now we're we're thinking about okay, let's go into oh, I the, so yeah, I mean the, the like the point that I was gonna make is that um, you know contrasting currency with Tylenol, like the the problem with with you know not understanding currency so much is that there, like so much of our life revolves around it, and so much of when the value of your late like okay, currency is fundamentally value. Right, it's the value of the work that you do relative to the things that you buy, the things you consume, and that's great. It's really a great system. It makes things much more efficient. But if it's so easily manipulated, it's it's you know so like think about in hyperinflation. Think about how detrimental that is. I mean, you spend your whole life like working and saving, and all of a sudden, all of the the scorecard that you have is worth nothing. Mm-hmm. All of your labor is worth nothing, and it's terrifying that we don't really understand it, and that it's so easy for people to go in, make a quick buck for themselves, and destroy livelihoods for millions or billions. Yeah. I mean, I think, so Warren Buffett put it a pretty good way. He said, price is what you pay, where value is what you get. And I think that kind of speaks to what you're talking about there. I mean, price is what you pay. In this case, it might be a coal miner who worked 50 years, contracted black lung, has a ton of medical conditions at the end of his life. But then all of a sudden their industry's racked. Let's say their pension plan gets destroyed because the, the, the currency, the way it works 
So the value that they got for the price they paid all of a sudden is pretty poor. <laughs> and that's where it really affects us on a day-to-day basis. That's why this is actually important. Otherwise, we're just highfalutin talking in esoteric ways. But when you think about it like that, you can royally screw over an entire people by poorly managing currency. And I think that kind of gets us into, let's talk about, so this is, this is obviously just currency, but like, let's talk about currency and value in the context of the, the, the game that we've created with this currency, which is capitalism. Mm-hmm. 